Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. So far this week in our series, Reimagine Chicago, we've explored how Chicago City Council works. We talked to former aldermen, experts, city historians, and you, the residents. We even checked in with Phoenix, Arizona, a big city that operates very differently than Chicago, to see what we could learn from them. Today on the podcast, we go international and turn to my hometown for some ideas. Chicago and Toronto are a lot alike. Both sit on the shores of the Great Lakes. Both have a population of nearly 3 million people. Both are rich with diversity and great food. But one big difference? They're city councils. Could the government system in Toronto work here in Chicago? In a moment, we'll hear from two Toronto city councillors about how politics work there and what lessons Chicago can learn. But first, joining us now to tell us more about what it's like living in Toronto is Dave Meslin. Dave, welcome to Reset. Hey, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Dave, you wear many hats. You're an artist, you're an activist, you're a community organizer. Can you tell us more about your experience living in Toronto? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's similar to Chicago. We have about three million people here in Toronto, and I'm really into city politics. I know people tend to focus more on our national politics or state level here. We call them provinces. But I think on a day-to-day basis, it's actually our city halls that really impact our lives. The things we interact with all the time, our, our parks, our schools, our police, our, our roads, our libraries, daycares, you name it. All those decisions are made by the men and women who sit in our council or alderman seats. And I think it's something that most people overlook. And that's something that I'm trying to work on all the time. How do we build a culture of engagement where people are actually involved in shaping the city around them. Which ward do you live in, Dave? And and talk about your relationship with your city councillor. Yeah, well, we've just gone through a huge change in Toronto. We had 44 councillors and we were unceremoniously chopped in half (laughs) down to 25. So let me first say that I'm very jealous that Chicago has 50 I know that that's more than than most cities our size, but I think it's really important. If we're going to use the term local democracy, then you should feel that your councillor is local. And in Toronto, our councillors now, that's the term we use instead of aldermen, they each represent 120,000 people. There's nothing local about that at all. I mean, that's larger than most towns and villages in either of our countries. That is a lot. I'm really involved with my neighborhood group, and we're in touch with our city councilor all the time. We try and collaborate on issues. You know, we push back on things when when we need to. But I, I've learned, you know, I'm 46. So whereas my activist career started out by yelling in the streets and protesting, I've learned how to um, build relationships with both the bureaucracy and the politicians and and at least try and get things done that way as a first attempt. Well, for someone like you who's really connected within your neighborhood, give us a sense of what you're hearing from people in your community about how they view Toronto politics and and leadership. 
I'm an anomaly. Most people in Toronto, I assume it's similar in Chicago and any city in either of our countries, they almost completely tune out municipal politics. It's it's not on their radar. Our voter turnout federally and at our provincial level is, you know, 50 to 60 percent. And municipally in Toronto, it's more like 40. And in our surrounding municipalities, it can go as low as 30 or even 25 percent. And I know that there's American cities where it can go even lower. There's a very common problem that we both have, which is that people aren't connecting the dots between the issues they care about and the decision-making processes that, you know, affect their homes and their neighborhoods. We do have some really cool projects in our neighborhood right now. For example, we drilled holes in all of our sugar maple trees and we collectively get all the maple sap and we make neighborhood maple syrup and all the volunteers get their own little bottle. And I think those types of collective activity actually gives neighborhoods more political strength because when you know each other, you can speak with a common voice when the time arises. You wrote a book on how we can reimagine democracy. Uh, It's called Tear Down, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. Tell us what you think are some of the best practices of creating a a culture of engagement between governments and citizens. Well, I do two things with the book. One is I give a really honest and some people would say negative or pessimistic, but I, I would say very accurate diagnosis of how bad things are right now when it comes to democracy. Yes, we have freedom of speech. Yes, we have peaceful transition of power. But we can't just measure democracy in those ways. We have to measure democracy based on how many people are actually participating, how many people have confidence in the system. We have to look at the number of black, indigenous and people of color representatives, you know, in our state legislatures, in our national governments and in our local governments. You're doing much better than we are here in Toronto. You could use the hashtag council so white for almost every major city council in Canada. When it comes to gender balance, when it comes to ethnic diversity, we're absolutely failing. We've also seen a lot of centralization of power, often in the hands of one person, whether we're talking about having a very strong mayor system or having a president or a governor who's playing an expanded executive role than how those positions were originally designed. And then the second half of the book is a hundred really fun remedies and, you know, things we could do to increase engagement. And I looked all across North America and the world for great examples, including some stuff I got from Chicago. You know, there's been a movement for participatory budgets all across North America, and Chicago has been a leader on that. I looked at ways where we could increase Uh, campaign finance reforms to make campaign elections not just funded by the wealthy, but accessible to everyone. And I, I found that Seattle had the best version of that. I looked at how we can make democracy more bite sized when we have these enormous cities like Chicago and Toronto. How do you give back that sense of local democracy? And I found that Los Angeles has 90 elected neighborhood councils within their city that operates underneath the city council. It was so cool. And so I just found all these examples all over the world of ways that people are experimenting to make democracy more relevant, familiar, and participatory and engaging. That's Dave Meslin from Toronto. He's an artist, an activist, and community organizer. Dave, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Sasha. 
now that we've heard from one resident about his relationship with his city councilor, what does a city councilor do exactly? And how does city council run in Toronto? Madam Speaker, the report talks about the gap in the Canadian benefit. Madam Speaker, just a uh, quick question. There's a lot of uh, uh, pretty forward-thinking design in this uh, in this uh, uh, EA. You mentioned Yorkdale. I'm just west of you, and I have not been consulted on Yorkdale. So hopefully you'll update me on your Yorkdale project. Thank you. My Yorkdale project, not mine. I would agree that this has been debated by committee, debated by council on several occasions. On favor of waiving notice, Carrie. Now in a moment, we'll hear from Kristen Wong-Tam. She's Toronto City Councillor for Ward 13, Toronto Centre, which covers the heart of downtown Toronto. But first, joining us for an inside look at the role is Gary Crawford. He is Toronto City Councillor for Ward 20, Scarborough Southwest. And it's actually where I grew up. Hi, Councillor Crawford. Glad you could join us. I'm glad to be here, Sasha. So you are currently serving your third term as a city councillor. Can you tell us, what does a city councillor do? What a city councillor does, or a city council does, is determines and makes decisions on really how the the infrastructure of how a city works, similar to Chicago, Toronto, and, and Chicago are about the same size. So we make decisions on, you know, water, on transit, making sure your garbage is picked up. We're looking at ensuring that the roads are cleaned and rebuilt, all of the kind of municipal infrastructure and issues that a typical city would deal with. So we have 25 councillors along with a city mayor who are responsible uh, collectively for making the decisions on really how the city runs and works. And Councillor Scarborough Southwest is, is very diverse. Can you just tell us a bit more about your constituents? Yeah, so Scarborough Southwest is in the city of Toronto, out in the east part of the the Toronto by the lakes. It is what we call the Scarborough Bluffs area. So it's about 110,000 people, very mixed incomes, beautiful areas down on the lake. You have some beautiful spaces and spots, of course, in Chicago. But we also have areas of poverty and um, real need in the wards. And uh, you've got a large immigrant community as well. Yeah, I mean, Toronto, in fact, uh, similar to Chicago, is a, a very diverse city. We actually look at ourselves as probably the most diverse city in Canada, but maybe in all of the world. So we, we recognize the diversity. We celebrate the diversity. The challenges, of course, come along with that kind of uh, diversity, but the, the cultural differences that we have, we enjoy. Uh, and my ward in particular, you know, you, when you're looking at uh, Bengali, Hindu, Sikh, there's a whole variety, Chinese, there's a whole variety of people who we represent in. As I said, most of the time it works out well, but we do have the similar challenges to a city like Chicago when you're looking at equity, uh, when we're looking at racism. It's all there, and yeah. uh, we do our best to try to uh, manage it. Chicago's mm-hmm. got 50 wards. Some of them are very strangely shaped, you know, with aldermen who are more like mini-mayors than legislators. And Toronto's mm-hmm. city council recently went from 47 wards to 25. What kind of impact mm-hmm. do you think that had? Well, two things. I think when you're looking at the decision-making process, so when you're looking at the decisions that are made by council, you have less politicians, so you have less people who are debating, who are you know potentially grandstanding. So the actual work at the city council is much more streamlined. In fact, I think we actually work better as a council when we're looking at 
consensus when we're looking at trying to figure out, you know, where we generally, um, you know, position to make a decision. So I see that working reasonably well. Where the challenges are is, of course, we now have constituencies that, in my particular case, 110,000 people, which means we have considerable amount of people contacting our offices about drainage on the sidewalks, speed humps on streets. So I find myself as a representative, I've never been busier where I am out constantly meeting individuals and, and residents uh, because they, there's an expectation, Sasha, uh, on municipal government in Canada and Toronto that you reach out to your federal counterparts, your provincial counterparts, but it's the municipal people. There's an expectation of, you know, wanting direct contact with me. So on Fridays, I spend pretty much the entire day just meeting with residents and talking with them where at the other levels of government, not as much. So yeah. our workload has increased uh, substantially. You're also Toronto's budget chief. So from your perspective, is there anything that you think needs to change or improve about the way that city government operates in Toronto? Yeah, and I think similar to Chicago, when you look at the powers of the City of Toronto and all municipalities, our biggest challenge is just the legislative influence that the provincial government has over the municipalities all across Ontario, but of course specifically the City of Toronto. So the provincial government really controls a lot of what we do. We always are continually going up to the province, asking them for permission after permission to do things. And that's, I think, one of our biggest challenges, especially when you're looking at us as a large city. We're the fourth largest city in North America, similar to Chicago. But when you're looking at the largest city in all of Canada, we do not have the same sort of decision-making powers that a province would have. Like, we are larger than a number of provinces in Canada. We are actually still controlled by the province. So you look at the economic impact that the city of Toronto has in our area, and in Canada, it's huge. We still have to be going up to the province, almost asking, you know, for many different things, and it just doesn't make sense. I appreciate you breaking that down for us. That's Toronto City Councillor Gary Crawford of Ward 20. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Let's head over now about 20 miles southwest to Ward 13, Toronto Centre. Kristen Wong-Tam represents that ward and she joins us now. Councillor Wong-Tam, welcome to Reset. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. We just spoke with Councillor Crawford, who is serving his third term, and you're also serving your third term. So tell us what it means to you to be in this role. Um, well, I mean, the city of Toronto is a, is a fairly large city. I'm sure Councillor Crawford has uh, gone through some of those statistics. But he and I represent two different parts of the city. I represent the most urbanized part of the, of the downtown core. So if you can think of your major downtown malls, your main street of, of any major city, those are my catchment areas. I've got some really dynamic neighborhoods. It's also known as the downtown east, which brings us a combination of two things. One is incredible wealth because I represent the financial district, all the bank towers, but also incredible poverty. We have some of the largest concentration of people without housing, all within the same catchment area. You talk about the diversity of Toronto. Of course, I know it having been raised there. Um, you know, Half of the population of the city of Toronto is non-white, yet 90% of the city council is white. Here in Chicago, the the city council is making strides in its representation of uh, Latino and and black communities, but there has only ever been one Asian-American alderman, and and because of the way the wards are are shaped and gerrymandered here, Chinatown is actually not represented by a Chinese-American in city council. So 
What do you make of the lack of representation and diversity in city politics, both in Toronto and here in Chicago? Mm-hmm. I mean, part of it is, 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 I think, structural barriers. So, therefore, who actually has access to, you know, political power largely depends on your access to housing, your ability to maintain a, a stable workplace. You need to have a lot of supports around you before you can actually jump into the electoral process, especially as a candidate. And those barriers exist many times more over if you happen to be a racialized person or if you're a woman, if you're an immigrant that speaks with an accent, you're a person living with a disability and so forth. For the first two terms of my time at City Council, I was the only racialized woman to sit on city council. I'm the first out lesbian non-binary person to have been elected in the history of the city of Toronto, and I would love some additional company. But in order for that to happen, we need to make sure that there's more opportunities for women, for LGBT people, for racialized people to actually advance in those electoral races. So based on your experiences, what would you say are some of the strengths of Toronto City Council? It's interesting because I think, you know, unlike our upper levels of government, and in our case in Canada, we've got provincial governments and, and obviously national federal governments, where it's divided into party systems. So you either pick a color and pick a team. As government officials at the local level, you are in office and you are in government because technically there is no opposition. So you may cast a vote against something or for something and you're held accountable to your voters, but really decisions made by the municipal government today, you wear it whether you support it or not. Mm-hmm. So even if you sit as an elected official, you may have had a different opposing opinion as opposed to your mayor. Uh, and in this case, you know, our mayor is a conservative mayor. He is big business has major shares and an advisor to a major telecoms communications company, but he's also civic-minded when it comes to smaller progressive issues. But, you know, we don't oftentimes see eye-to-eye on, on issues, especially when it comes to, to big business. So I think that whether or not I agreed with our mayor or his executive, and I don't sit on his executive, I get to wear those big sort of mayoral council decisions. And I have to be very clear when I am in opposition to something or I need to raise an issue on behalf of my community. And if it means I have to get loud, then I do so, uh, largely because they need me to get loud. Given your relationship that you described with Mayor Tory, do you feel that the weak mayor system in Toronto works in your favor? So I guess it's a great question. So uh, because I'm on the outside of the mayor's team, I would probably say it it works probably better, right? So the mayor has one vote in the city of Toronto, but what he does have uh, and what every mayor has is the, the body of influence. So he has the ability to appoint chairs of standing committees. Sometimes these are lauded positions that people want, and it means that it gets to curry favors. As someone who's not in the mayor's executive, I actually get to speak my mind and I can just speak on behalf of my constituents. But does it help me that the mayor has now shifted to the ground that I used to occupy, such as homelessness and poverty? Absolutely, because now he's singing from, I believe, the songbook that many people have been singing from. But of course, like everything else, uh, when you're in a position of power, People are going to want you to move uh, faster. They're going to want you to do more. And that's no different than the advocates on those issues. They want me to do more. They want me to do faster. And, of course, I turn around and say, absolutely, we've got to get it done. And I'll need the mayor's support, which is now coming along. you feel like you and your colleagues are working together to make some of these changes a reality? If you asked me this question before the COVID pandemic, I would say uh, not so much. 
largely because we were kind of going in separate spaces and, and oftentimes at different paces. But during COVID, now that we've seen the social inequities highlight all the major problems bigger for us, more food insecurity, more poverty, more homelessness, I think that even the right-wing counselors, even the most conservative counselors, are realizing that it has not worked, the system. So during COVID, we've definitely pulled together. Housing is now a priority. It was not the priority for this council back in 2018 when we held our last election. Food security is now a priority, before not so much. Addressing systemic racism, dealing with anti-black racism, dealing with discrimination when it comes to our First Nations, uh, Inuit and Métis people is now a priority. And I think we're stronger for it. Um, and hopefully things will not snap back to the way it was before COVID because I think that would be a missed opportunity of learning. And hopefully we continue to grow and, and get stronger from, from there because People in Toronto deserve it, and people in Chicago deserve that from their government, too. That's Toronto City Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam of Ward 13. Councillor Wong-Tam, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, and, and all the best to everybody. Hopefully we'll see you on the other side safely. So how do legislative politics in Toronto compare with how things work here in Chicago? And could those systems be instructive for our city? Well, on the line with us to discuss is Meyer Siniatiki. He's a frequent media commentator in Toronto on municipal matters, and he's a retired professor emeritus at Ryerson University, where he specialized in urban politics. Fun fact, Ryerson is my alma mater. Meyer, welcome to Reset. Delighted to be with you. Wonderful having you on the program, Meyer. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Chicago and Toronto have a few things in common, you know, from their population size and location along the Great Lakes to their industrial pasts. But there seems to be big differences in how legislative politics work in both of these cities. For one, Toronto has a weak mayor system and Chicago has a strong mayor system. So can you just talk about that difference? Yeah, it makes a huge difference. And and so you've captured it really nicely. Uh, You know, the head of council in both cities is the mayor elected at large across the entire municipality and working with other council members who are elected in smaller jurisdictions and constituencies in wards. The Canadian system of municipal government is widely recognized as being a weak mayor system. Really, it means that the mayor is more like another member of council than unlike another member of council. So the the kind of assumption in the Canadian system is a mayor is as successful as their persuasive skills or depending on a mayor's bullying powers. And I'm thinking of a past mayor of Toronto who your listeners may recall, (laughs) Rob Ford. I definitely remember him. Rob Ford of Toronto. He's admitted to smoking crack, buying drugs, falling down drunk in office. The acting out was caught on tape, but the mayor vowed to keep his job. I wasn't forced to admit what I admitted, but I did. It was a personal mistake that we all have done. Maybe not as serious as mine. Well, folks, if you think American-style politics is nasty, mark my words, friends, this is going to be outright war in the next election. And I'm going to do everything in my power. That's what it comes down to. Can a mayor rustle up a majority of votes on every single issue that comes before council? So it's a much more unpredictable, it's a much weaker system of municipal government. And yeah, that has implications for the way politics work in Toronto. And Chicago has 
50 gerrymandered wards that are oddly shaped, while Toronto has 25 block wards. But that wasn't always the case. Yeah, so this is important. I took a look at the electoral ward map of Chicago. Man, it looks like a snakes and ladders board. (laughs) Like, it's bizarre. Like, stuff is flying in all kinds of different directions, and it really looks like somebody put a lot of thought into how can I make this picture as messy as possible for some motive that I've got in mind here. So here's the story on Toronto. The shape and size of wards really, really matters. And the best example of this in the Toronto case goes back to the 1960s and 70s when Toronto, like many North American cities, was dealing with population growth. And Toronto in the early 1960s had what we called strip wards. They were literally long strips, almost like your longest finger digit, Mm -hmm. just starting at the lake. And in Toronto's case, Lake Ontario is our southernmost position. So wards would start at Lake Ontario and then in very thin strips stretch all the way north in the city of Toronto. And so what that meant was that the central city, which is generally speaking where working class where older neighborhoods were desperately trying to hang on as stable inner city neighborhoods, they didn't have a voice of their own because inevitably, like in a strip ward, the people who tended to get elected were those with more money to run, higher visibility profile, and that ended up being people in kind of the suburbs who were further north. So in about the mid-1960s, Toronto shifted to block wards. And the idea was, let's create wards that are more communities of interest, like where you have more of a defined and predominant kind of a population, whether it's by income, whether it's by race, whether it's by ethnicity, mother tongue, etc., And that laid the basis for all of the downtown councillors being elected to defend the stability of, of central city neighborhoods. And so the geography really matters. What kind of impact would you say that the change from strip wards to block wards had on residents and communities and on the Toronto ward system as a whole? I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that it was revolutionary in terms of giving much more of a voice to central neighborhoods in the downtown also had a kind of hipster educated students professoriate in that downtown core and it gave them a political voice that they hadn't had before it kind of shifted the weight from City council being controlled by a combination of small business owners and suburbanites to city council suddenly being a voice for urbanists, for people who wanted a dynamic central city, which certainly was going to include homes and residences, not just a central business district. And so for a long time, Toronto had the reputation at a time when North American cities were, especially American cities, were in trouble in the 70s and into the 80s. Toronto had the nickname of the city that works because it had preserved its neighborhoods. It hadn't run roughshod. And a lot of that really came from something as 
in a way, simple as changing the word geographies. So, Meyer, given what you've shared with us overall, what do you think is working in Toronto politics, and what could Chicago learn from that? What I would argue is institutional change of decision-making structures isn't the end-all and be-all and the solution to every governance problem. In other words, strong mayor, weak mayor, the geography of wards, institutional arrangements can solve everything. What's more important, I would say, is having mechanisms in place that allow for public engagement, public voice, public input. And that can happen in so many different kinds of ways that I think it's a mistake to think that the solution to everything is only redraw the map. Because in some ways, I think some of the greatest changes in Toronto have come about because of citizen participation and citizen engagement. So I would say in a way that the solution lies in changes in emphasis on giving voice to residents, which certainly can include some institutional arrangements like making sure that every voice is heard. And if you've got a screwball kind of a map electorally that elects your councillors, the result of that is you're not hearing all voices, and that's a problem. That's Meyer Semiotiki with Ryerson University. Meyer, thank you so much for breaking that down for us. Such a pleasure. No, really appreciate it, Nasasha. Anytime. I'm good on hockey and uh, <laughs> well, especially hockey too. So if you ever want we'll to talk about Blackhawks and God, God knows what else, give me a shout. We'll certainly do that. Thank you, Meyer. <laughs> okay, Sasha. Best to you. Tomorrow on the podcast, we wrap up this first week of Reimagined Chicago. We'll hear from the city's watchdog, a longtime alderman, and a community organizer for their takes on ways our local government could work better. Tune in tomorrow afternoon as we reimagine a different city council in Chicago. That's it for today. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we'll meet again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.